Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Nate Tronfio, and today we have a special guest. I always like to refer to him as one of the house whisperers that I know, Michael Finch with SVN and SFR Hub. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Michael, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. I uh, that's a that's a new one. I don't think I've uh, I've ever been introduced with a uh, reference to being a house whisperer. Hey, that's how I know you, man. And I know you deal with all houses, shapes and sizes, portfolios, and everything in between. Some other commercial assets as well. So let's get into it. Give us the sixty second pitch on overall what SVN and SFR Hub do broadly, because there's a lot. But just broadly paint that picture so everybody knows that expertise. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's um, sometimes I think it's a little confusing, but we operate three companies under our SFR Hub umbrella. One is SVN, SFR Hub Advisors. That's a national commercial brokerage solely focused on single family investment portfolios and new construction build for rent portfolios. And then we have SFRHub.com. That is our tech platform website, houses all of our listings, but it's also behind the scenes a data research and valuation company. We do a lot of consulting with developers and builders on the build for rent side there, but it's really the engine behind our three companies and allows us to operate efficiently, underwrite efficiently, help others underwrite efficiently, value portfolios, so on and so forth. And our third company is SVN, SFR Capital Management. That's an asset management and operating company that only buys new construction, build for rent subdivisions, certificate of occupancy, and then lease up the homes as we're acquiring them and stabilize and operate. There we go. So like, hopefully that will uh, help everybody put the house whisperer into exactly why I call you that, because you literally cover almost every side of a transaction, have visibility from, again, the brokerage transactional side, all of the research, as you said, that's the glue that ties all the companies together and, and the very detailed market analysis, and then the actual formal operator side. So you know it from all angles, man. And that's why I'm excited for our listenership to get to know a little bit of what you're seeing in the market. Thank you. I think you made a, an interesting point there. You know, we've been in this space since 2014. I'm very, very fortunate to be one of the principal founders of these three companies. I'm fortunate that it gives me a unique view, depending on the hat that I'm wearing. You know, so I get to see how things are behaving in the brokerage side, how buyers of scattered home portfolios are operating and thinking and behaving. Same on BFR operators and then the data side, and then on the operating side and dealing with builders and capital debt and equity. And, and so yeah, I, have a, I have a unique kind of full picture view, I guess, is the best way to say. I'm very fortunate to get to see things from a lot of different angles. Well, let's get into hoping that we get a, a look from your lens and glasses as well. So just generally speaking, because again, you cover a lot of ground, but in the areas that you're, you know, that you guys transact and do research and operate in. What trends are you seeing? What's going on in the market right now? Yeah, depending on the lens, it's a lot and a little. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's certainly been, from an institutional perspective, on acquiring single-family portfolios or even one-off homes from the MLS, which, you know, Invitation Homes and Progress, Amherst, those types of groups that typically buy off their MLS channels. They've all slowed down tremendously. I, I think most of them have have probably sold for the first time in their history more than they've purchased this year. 
And a lot of operators have really been focusing on kind of trimming their portfolio, focusing on revenue and unit terms and, and rent growth. And a lot of that is just due to the low supply on the MLS. There's not much out there. On the new construction build for rent side, it's also slowed in the market. There's a lot of dry powder still sitting out there. There's a lot of capital that wants to do deals. There are a lot of groups that have slowed down their acquisition this year, largely due to that, you know, everything they were acquiring in 21 and early 22, not expecting interest rates to skyrocket the way they have the last 12 months. You know, I've been put in an uncomfortable situation where, and same on the the scattered home portfolio side, those that, that purchased, you know, a lot of portfolios in 21 and early 22, you know, their exit strategies have changed. They've, you know, they may have to have gone back to equity and ask for for more equity because, you know, they weren't going to be able to refi their their deals, you know, after a two-year bridge note, you know, to give them the acquisition power and capital to acquire something, stabilize it or rehab it, stabilize it. You know, and here we are today. It's a, it's an entirely different market than it literally was 14 months ago. So it's definitely slowed down the acquisition front. But on the flip side, and you know what's I think shocking certainly to me, my crystal ball went from you know see through 15 months ago to very nebulous today and throughout the year because I would have anticipated the values of homes to go down, but that didn't happen. And that's purely a supply demand issue there. You know, it's hard for values to go down while interest rates are rising when there's very limited supply. So the value has held strong, the rents, you know, and and it's actually appreciated almost everywhere east of Arizona. I think the only, you know, markets that we've seen some value declines is on the West Coast. Everything else has continued appreciating. And because of that supply demand, imbalance, you know, rents have continued to go up and and much more so in single family and build for rent as opposed to multifamily. So it's just, it's been very, very unique. I think the entire market is ready to get to work. I think they're hoping that, you know, whether or not the Fed raises one or two more times this year, but as soon as that ceiling is reached and the Fed says all of our metrics check off and we're done raising. I don't see it lowering anytime soon, but again, my crystal ball isn't see-through. <laughs> but um, but I, I think once that ceiling is hit, the capital markets are going to open up. People are going to say, all right, now we know our baseline. Now we know we can underwrite in the future. Now we know, you know that we can deploy capital with some confidence. And I, I think we'll start seeing the market open up some more and you know hopefully by the end of the year and so i think 24 is going to be a good year and much like yourself every lender every title company every operator asset manager i mean they're all eager to start deploying capital and get to work but it has been very hard from you know the equity and debt component side to um you know get that box check to say yeah go out and spend money yeah it's um here we are again at an interest point in the cycle and a lot of people pointing fingers at lenders and debt. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's very much the truth, especially in the realms that you play in and have a lot of visibility to. If you were to just further describe, like a lot of also, I think what needs to be refined and worked through is sort of like the buyer and seller price gap 
So like how far apart is sort of bids and asks, generally speaking, and do you see any capitulation now and coming soon or change therein? You know, so one thing I want to clarify, it certainly wasn't pointing finger at the debt. I mean, you know, we're all <laughs> in the same boat, you know, no matter what side of the pond you're, you know, taking off from, the debt is constrained by by the equity and, and the higher rates and they need deals to, you know, have enough cash flow to cover their debt service, you know, and a lot of them don't because nobody anticipated rates to rise. So I guess if I was pointing my finger at anybody, I'd be pointing it at the Fed. I was going to say that a yeah, bad joke, but definitely we can point it at the big bad Fed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll do that because we're, you know, all of us want to put out money and put out capital and, you know, get to work. You know, the biggest gap is really that the values have kept going up and luckily the rents are rising in single family, but, you know, they're not rising at the rate they were during COVID. So when we were having a big appreciation occurring rents were also rising at eight to ten percent year over year so it was keeping up it was keeping up with the values and in some some areas outpacing the appreciation growth but that gap has widened where the rents are increasing two three four five percent while the rates were you know have tripled from june of 2022 until today and values have you know been been going up at kind of that same sort of appreciation level of two, three, four, five percent. It's just made it it's made it challenging on the cash flow. I think that's really the biggest challenge today. So, you know, I don't know that there's going to be a a value correction, but recessionary periods usually don't kick in for six to nine months after a Fed has stopped raising rates. So time will tell. You know, most people know that the commercial real estate market, when I say that, you know, we're, we're obviously in the commercial real estate world and, and single family portfolios, but I'm referring to office, retail, industrial, hospitality, multifamily. You know, there's trillions of dollars of loans coming due. And I think there's going to be a lot of distress on that side, which will have an effect on our market because everything's so connected. But we're still, we are still in, in the residential world, a separate market in the greater piece of the pie. And at some point, whether it's a stock market revaluation, um, you know, affordability is an issue. And, and if people can't buy entry level homes, you know, the builders are going to have to make a correction on their pricing. And that will help the investors as well. We're certainly not in a 2008 situation where we're, you know, there's tons of bad loans out there and people are going to be upside down. I don't, I don't see that happening, but there does need to be some slowing of value growth so the, the rents can catch up and the yields can catch up so people can find opportunities that they can put their money to work in. It's an interesting one. To your point, I think time will certainly tell, but, you know, as we all know, as interest rates rise, that has its correlated effects to to cap rates. And um, we just haven't seen the normal, you know, consistent trajectory of a movement in the same direction, which is interesting. And my personal opinion is, I think money will really help either temper pace of a decline. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's so much money to your point earlier on the sidelines looking to get in the game, debt, equity, and then also the other side of money, which we point the finger at truly on the Fed side, you know, how they control cost of funds and what they're doing 
quantitative easing and, and things of that nature, like that will really depict, in my opinion, you know, at what pace things do move in one direction or another. And I think it's just going to continue to prop things up for a little while. And who knows if we're in for distress or not. But let's hit one of the buzzwords I just brought up, you know, so specifically, maybe if you even want to you know, look specifically at build for rent, you know, what's going on with cap rates? Talk to us about what you're seeing there. There's no doubt that they've risen. And I know you were at the uh, the conference, the, the IMNBFR conference in Vegas, and it was good to see you while there. And, and this actually came up on one of my panel discussions. And I think the important thing to note is the cap rates are not treated equally. It's really dependent on the operator, whether it's build for rent or, or single family portfolios. But the more scale you have, the more efficient your operating costs tend to be, the more efficient your PM fees tend to be, the lesser your master policy insurance will be. You know, So if you're someone with 50 or 100 homes or your first BFR community, that NOI and the cap rate to the value is going to be different for that person or that group compared to somebody that's operating 5,000 homes and will have a cheaper insurance rate per home because it's spread out over more homes and property management is a big expense in the operating cash flow and we've had a number of proposals done by property management companies on their own accord and and i've seen so many different property manager fees from the big institutional guys down to local mom and pop pms and there can be a 6 to 8% swing in total PM fees, not the base PM fee. Are they adding in payroll? If it's a BFR community, do they have on-site leasing or is it all remote leasing? What do they charge on their renewal fees, their lease fees, their admin marketing fees? So when I say cap rates aren't created equal, an NOI of a million dollars with a 6% cap rate on it, that 6% might be a 5-7 for one buyer, and it might be a 6-4 for another buyer. So it's really about the operator and the scale and the efficiencies that you can drive in your operating costs, because cap rates are, are not created equal. But if they were, you know, everyone was performing at a CO purchase on a BFR community 18 months ago, they were acquiring at a, a 5 or a five and a half cap at certificate of occupancy before any homes released, they were performing an exit at a four cap. Well, today, most of the equity that goes into these operating companies wants to see, if you're buying a CO, they want to see an untrended yield of about a six and a half. So acquiring at a six and a half cap at CO is now necessary. And then performing a disposition cap rate at a five and a quarter is probably more typical, you know, so you're still getting that 100 to 125 basis point spread from acquisition to stabilization and then to exit. It's 150 to 200 basis points up specifically in the BFR side of things than it was 18, 24 months ago. The SFR side of things, cap rates I've seen go up quite a bit higher. I mean, even for good quality portfolios, if you don't have a seven and a half cap in front of it, it's really hard to transact. 
And that's a conversation that our brokerage team is having all the time with portfolio, not new construction portfolio owners. Now it's like, hey, if you guys want to sell, and if you need to sell today, this is where we've got to price it, or it should be priced. If you have time, spend six or nine or 12 months seasoning your portfolio, really focus on getting those rents to market rate. And it's for most operators outside of the institutions, most of them are, and traditionally over the course of their time of managing portfolios, whether it's been five years or 50 years, they've always been more interested in keeping tenants in place and maybe bumping the rents a little bit. But most operators aren't like the institutions that are, they've got a staff of thousands of people and and they're driving rents habitually. Every lease renewal, they're pushing the rents. And if the tenant doesn't want to pay it, they know they can get somebody in. So they're always staying at market rents, which for groups such as yourself is very beneficial because you've got to be able, and then the operator, you're not going to put a loan on something that won't cover the debt service and the operator needs to cover the debt service. And that can only be achieved when you're truly maximizing your rents. One of the biggest challenges today is this all happened so fast and before it wasn't as big of a deal because money was cheaper and the lenders would look at Proforma and say, okay, yeah, you're buying at 5 10% less than the retail value of these homes on a 100-home portfolio, and we can see that it's 20% under market rent, and you're going to improve those rents over 12, 24-month period, and then you know maybe refi into a, a more stabilized and, and permanent debt structure. Now that's not available. It's all about the current income. So our brokerage team specifically spends a lot of time working with sellers saying, hey, we've got to get these rents to market if you want the best price you can get. Otherwise, you your homes might all be worth $250,000 if you were to sell them on the MLS today. But to do 100 homes on the MLS is a is a very painstaking process for an individual. So pushing your rents, making sure that that revenue is there and, and driving the NOI is, is key to maximizing your value at disposition. A lot of interesting points there. And I love the perspective on no cap rates are treated equal. It's all sort of beauties in the eye of the operator and what their business plan is. But specifically, we on the lending side over the last couple of years, as the market's been very frothy, seen a lot of people sort of, as we'd say, buying on pro forma you know, buying on a so-called implied cap rate tied to future NOI after executing either all, some, or part of the business plan. So essentially what you're saying now is that because of the risk in the market, buyers are buying on in place well more often than they used to. Yeah. And it's driven by all the external factors. I mean, they really don't have a choice because no one will lend on a performa today. That NOI has really needs to be maxed out to where it can be in today's market. And the only way to max out an NOI is to make sure that you're actually hitting market rents, and which is a lot of the reason that the institutions haven't been buying and, and focusing on driving revenue within their portfolios. When a tenant moves out, maybe they've been there for four years, they're going to spend the 20 grand to in CapEx to 
to really get that home to a market rental rate condition. And that's how the mom and pops need to be thinking today too. If you own 50 homes and most of your tenants have been in place for six years, they've probably stayed there that long because you haven't pushed the rents. Because if they would leave, they would have to go somewhere where their rents are going to be two or three, $400 higher maybe. But in order to maximize your disposition, you've got to get those homes in market rent ready condition, you know, or true retail value as if you were going to sell a bacon on the MLS to make sure that you're getting the highest rent you can in the market. And that's how you drive the revenue and put yourself in a position to sell to a buyer and maximize your disposition price. But it also helps the buyer achieve the, the debt service and what their lenders are asking them to hit as a metric. So really having a turnkey portfolio price right is the best way to sell a deal today. Unless you've owned it for a very long time and you've got enough room to say, you know what, I'm not going to make the money that I could have made, say, 18 months ago, but I've still got a lot of equity in this deal and I can drop my price and still be happy with my exit and my profitability. And one of the good things about being a commercial real estate company like SVN, no matter the market that you're in, if you got 75 or 200 homes or whatever the number is, even if you're selling it for less than maybe you could have 18 months ago, our team can introduce you to local experts in the commercial real estate world. And maybe you 1031 your profit into a Starbucks or some triple net deal where you're going to get a nice coupon clip every month and you don't want to deal with tenants and toilets anymore, but you're going to get that capital gain savings you know, by utilizing a 1031. So you're still in a really good position from a profitability perspective, and you can roll that money in to an asset tax-free that's maybe going to be less of a headache than managing a portfolio because there's no denying that this is a, a great and very profitable asset class for long-term holders, but it also is a lot of work. Managing 100 homes is a lot more work than managing one building. We have those conversations a lot on the brokerage side with sellers saying, hey, you know, if you're comfortable at this pricing, and we can introduce you to a local SVN expert that does triple net deals or multifamily deals or, or whatever you might be interested in rolling your um, profits into in the next deal that, that might be a little less management intensive. That's It's a really good option for a lot of groups. And, and we do that all the time. SVN has 250 offices around the country. And every one of those offices, except for ours, focuses on traditional commercial real estate. So we can always make sure somebody is introduced to an expert in helping them acquire their next asset. Awesome. All that makes sense. Even tying into uh, the newer nickname I gave you at the beginning here. It's just, to me, this is all crystallizing for sure. I want to ask you a little bit about like how easy or hard it is to sort of get deals done. But specifically, I want to point it to on the handful or the lesser amount, although everybody wants it to be more, deals that go under contract. Are deals easier, harder to get done once a deal is tied up under contract? And essentially, like, are you seeing more or less fallout? And if so, why? That's a good question. The deals that we've gotten done by the time a contract has signed, I think, has been higher than in the past. But it's we've also had a lot less deals 
go under contract. So it's a little bit of a tough comparison, but the deals that do under, go under contract today, the boxes to get there have been so thoroughly checked that the confidence of the deal going through, I think, is higher. Where before, it was easier to get a deal under contract. You might stumble on more unknowns during your due diligence, where today, the upfront due diligence to get to a contract is much more scrutinized. So the deals that I've seen go under contract, I think have had a higher success rate, but there's been less deals going under contract. So I don't know that answers your question, but I, I think the deals that are going under contract today are getting done at a greater pace. There's just less of them going under contract. I would say that makes sense. But candidly, if you would ask my layman personal opinion, I would have guessed the opposite. <laughs> so always learning something new here. I guess, what have you seen in regards to changes in regards to contract offerings? So like, for example, are people putting in longer timeframes to get through due diligence or that, or it's taking longer for listings to then get under contract because the diligence on upfront? Is there any change in differentiation in hard money that's put on contracts from buyers? Like anything, I don't want to point you in too many directions, but any transactional changes that you've seen would be interesting to hear. I think the biggest disparity is really from the ask or list price of a deal from a seller and where the buyers are offering, you know, I guess call it a discount, but they're offering at a greater discount than what we had seen in the past because they're putting in offers that they know they can get done because they've ran it through with their debt and their equity and people are approving it as opposed to two years ago, they were putting in offers and going under contract and then going to the debt and equity because it was, you know, it was just easier to find that money 24 months ago than it is today. So it kind of ties into my previous comment and that there's just more due diligence getting done before going under contract today and more approvals being done prior to executing the contract, which is good because it's about surety of close. But there's definitely the sell side of the market was always a lagging indicator because people know what their homes are worth. They know what they were worth 15 months ago. And it's harder for a seller to come to terms that the market has changed as opposed to a buyer because a buyer is just going to be offering at, at where they know they can transact. Many months ago, the buyer and the seller were much closer to the same page. And now there's there's a bigger gap between what a buyer can do and what a seller wants. And what a seller wants isn't necessarily where the market is today. And, and that's just because this has all happened so quickly. And gets into one of our initial points, which is, you know, if you do want to sell, you really got to focus on driving the revenue if the revenue is in place today, and or you need to really work with your brokers to make sure that you're going to market on new construction, that you're going to market at a yield that's achievable. So if you know you can sell one home on the MLS today as a home builder for 400 grand. If you want to sell 150 of those homes to one buyer, 
can you sell it for 375 and still be comfortable with your profitability? But yeah, there's going to be a discount to where the perceived retail value is today per home in order to achieve the yields necessary for the investors to transact. Makes sense. And so as we start to wind down, I'm definitely going to ask you for short and medium term projections here. But before we get to that, thesis on build to rent coming out of pandemic, like the story was so easy to tell. Everyone wants more space because of the pandemic that happened. Therefore, should be a, a higher demand and acceptance and tolerability to higher rents. Can you speak on anything, sort of SFR rents, whether it's build to rent or even scattered site, and how you see the rent growth comparatively to sort of your standard multifamily, whether garden style, mid rise, high rise? Like, do you expect build to rent or SFR rents to grow faster, sustain longer than multifamily? That's a great question. And The short answer is yes, I 100% believe it's more sustainable and the growth and the trajectory for growth is more solid in single family and built for rent than it's not a comparable, but multifamily is still a residential product. But and again, that's just driven by the supply. There is less available single family homes today than there are apartments in the apartment market almost across the board has seen major concessions. There's big concessions today in the apartment markets. Rents haven't just slowed, but they've they've dropped. Where in the single family market, rents have slowed but are still positive. And the tailwinds for both build for rent and single family, I think, are are very, very strong. And that's just because There's so few homes available today. And if you're a family and or a a wannabe entry-level buyer and you and your wife and maybe you've got a dog or a kid or if you've got multiple kids, you're not going to move into an apartment building. And quite frankly, outside of the kind of the horizontal apartments that get lumped into build for rent, but groups like Next Metro and Christopher Todd, and there's dozens of others now. They do build three-bedroom units, and they are detached, but they're still smaller units. I think the the biggest ones are 11 or 1,200 square feet on the the three-bed side. But if you have a family and you can't afford the down payment on a house and the interest rate prices you out, which based on all reports I've seen, owning a home today, and say it's the exact same home, call it $300,000, Four hundred thousand dollar home, it is on average a thousand to eleven hundred dollars cheaper to rent that home than it is to have a mortgage on it. So it's cheaper to rent than it is to own. And with such a, a short supply and limited supply of homes available, which the home builders are really the only ones adding to the supply today. In a typical market, they're twelve percent of the supply. I think there are over 40% today, which is astonishing. And they're getting homes sold because they're buying down interest rates by a couple hundred basis points. So mortgage rates are at seven or higher today for a, a residential buyer. And the home builders are buying those rates down to the fives just to just to get their homes sold. 
I don't know how long that can last. You know, the builders are, are working off a of higher margins they have in the past. But as the retail buyers continue to slow, which they have been month over month, the builders are in a unique position now compared to any other market in the past when build for rent didn't exist. If retail buyers stopped buying, home builders stopped building. Well, now they can turn to groups like us at SFR Capital Management or some of the other BFR operators and say, hey, I just started this community. We're seeing our sales dwindle to one or two per month. They're going to be more willing to maybe take a discount at the right time in the future to keep their crews busy, to keep their subs busy. And to build homes because that is what they do, right? So it, you know, it, it's a different time than there ever has been before. Home builders, if anybody listening and and, and you Nathan were around in 2008 or you saw the movie The Big Short, and I was literally one of those guys walking around half-built subdivisions where there was just a bunch of lots and half the homes were built, and a majority of those homes were unoccupied. That won't happen today because now the builders have a different buyer group to turn to, which are the investors, and, and they just didn't exist 15 years ago. So if that happens and the, the retail market slows down and the builders can't push pricing, there are going to be investors there that say, hey, we'll buy your homes, we'll lease them, and there's going to be plenty of demand to lease them because these people need homes to live in. And like I said, families aren't going to move into a two bedroom apartment, you know, that has neighbors on every side. They want to live in a single family home. They need to live in a single family home. And it's cheaper to rent a single family home today than it is to own that same home. So the tailwinds for the space, I think are incredible. I think anybody that gets in to buying build for rent today or that can transact on a single family portfolio and you're not thinking you can flip it in two years, you know, and make money, but you're in it for the long run. I think 10 years from today, you're going to be patting yourself on the back and being very, very pleased that you got in when you did, because we are years and years out from catching up to a supply demand equilibrium. I mean, we just I think we'd have to build 1.7 million homes a year for several years to get to that equilibrium. And I think we're around eight or 900,000 homes built this year. And it was about the same last year. And that may even slow in the next couple of years. If, if the stock market hits a snag, people's 401ks go down, they're going to be less likely to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to make the biggest purchase of my life and buy a new home because I don't know what's going on in the economy. And that's a big purchase for a home buyer, but it doesn't take away from the fact that they still need a home to live in. So renting that new home is the next best, best option. If you want to be in a good school district, you want to have the space for your family and you don't want to be crammed into a two bedroom apartment. It's, uh, it's funny how the pendulum can swing quickly with a couple hundred basis points and increase in rates on what's more favorable home, yeah. home ownership or rentership. But nonetheless, to your points, significant runway for, you know, really for all opportunities and size of real estate investors, as there's just sheer shortage of housing across the board and love the passionate and the very confident resounding 
build for rent is going to be here for a while. And I'm not surprised to hear why rents have sustained and grown more than multifamily residential asset class as well. So I think that's probably a great point to leave off our audience here as you apply a little bit about the future. And, you know, it's just like in a lot of business and investing, if you're willing to think long term and you have the capital that's sticky enough to stay with it for longer than shorter, especially in today's market, there will always be opportunities. And you heard it here from somebody who knows it from all sides. And Michael, I just appreciate you making this podcast episode really easy on me because all I had to do is point you in one direction and then we get to to hear all the whispering that you hear on from houses yourself and share with the, the listenership here. So Michael, man, thank you so much for dropping all this knowledge. We're going to have to bring you back because I think we're still just scratching the surface of it. Yeah, we would love to. And, and I appreciate you guys inviting me. Always happy to talk. I mean, this is what we do, Nathan. And if you're in it, you, you should be passionate about it. And I think as I said, if, if the Fed indicates that they're not going to raise rates anymore, that's really the time to start looking for opportunities and not wait for some perceived bottom, but put your capital to work, get in the market, build your portfolio, build your scale, improve your operating efficiencies. And who knows when rates will come down. Wishful thinking is sooner than later, of course, but they will. They will come down eventually. So if you start buying sooner rather than later, you're going to put yourself in a better position to have the relationships, to show the know-how, to raise money easier. When the values don't come down, but rates come down, you can keep buying better deals over time and really scaling your portfolio and just doing the work is the most important key to success. And there's going to be hurdles in good and bad markets, but but you got to get in you need to stay in and you you got to keep moving forward. We're all rowing in the same boat here. So whether you're a lender, a property manager, a title company, an investor, everybody's dealing with, with similar challenges, but being in the game is the key to success. <laughs> no, that's uh, well said and leaves everybody with some very hopeful and positive outlooks. Is I think that your points around, make sure you're ready to put your capital to work, especially what the Fed does upcoming. So again, I can't can't thank you enough. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Michael Finch with SVN and SFR Hub. Make sure everybody you subscribe on your favorite platform. Check us out on Tuesdays for new episodes to drop. You can always find us on our website, realestateofthings.co. And we will catch you next time with some more insights and hopefully some more house whispering that we just heard. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.